0: Welcome to my mommy's podcast
1: this podcast is sponsored by four sigmatic my go-to source for functional mushrooms like lion's mane chaga cordyceps and more recently i've really been enjoying their protein powder it's new and it's delicious it contains 18 grams of pure plant proteins seven functional mushrooms and adaptogens and the realest organic vanilla out there plus not a single grain gum or gram of stevia I love adding their vanilla flavor to a smoothie with some berries for an easy meal. My kids love it too. And their peanut butter flavor blended with some cacao and macadamia milk makes a great protein-packed afternoon pick-me-up. If you haven't tried Four Sigmatic, I'm also a huge fan of their Lion's Mane Coffee in the Morning for non-jittery clean energy and their Reishi Elixir Packets at Night for restorative sleep but I'm yet to try any of their products that I don't love. So check all of them out at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama saves you 10% on everything. So again, that's dot com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness all one word, all lowercase to save 10%. This podcast is sponsored by wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's the personal care company that I founded to take on some of the worst offenders in the personal care world. Did you know, for instance, that many hair care products contain harsh detergents? But your hair isn't dirty laundry and it doesn't need to be treated like it is. Instead, we created a nourishing and natural hair food product that supports hair's natural balance and strength over time to leave it stronger and healthier and still just as shiny and clean as any other shampoo. To help you see and feel the difference, we're hosting a hair detox challenge. Try it for 30 days and show us the difference in your hair. Just snap a before and after picture and tag us on any social media. And to make it easier for you to jump in, you can save 15% on all of our hair care products this month with the code HAIRDETOX15 wellness.com. Again, that's wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com and save 15% on all hair care products right now with the code HAIRDETOX15. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's my new personal care line, wellness with an E on the end. I am here today with The first person who really helped me on my road to recovery from thyroid disease, and I can now say I am in full remission from Hashimoto's. I'm here with Dr. Alan Christensen, who is most recently the author of The Thyroid Reset Diet, which we talk about today, and especially some very specific things that are extremely vital for getting the thyroid to actually heal itself. He makes a very strong case for the fact that thyroid disease often does not have to be lifelong, but that much of the conventional advice that we are given about thyroid disease can actually be counterproductive to long-term healing. If you aren't familiar with Dr. Christensen, he is a naturopathic endocrinologist who specializes in thyroid disease, specifically Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. He's also my specialist when it comes to thyroid Um, specific problems, although I don't have any current thyroid specific problems, and he was the first one who was able to accurately diagnose Hashimoto's and help me figure out what my path to recovery would look like. I'm always so happy to share him with you guys, and I think a lot of the new information he presents in this episode is really, really helpful for anyone with thyroid struggles, and his new book, The Thyroid Reset Diet, is also very important. So if you have any kind of thyroid-related issues, I highly recommend it. Um, The link to it will be in the show notes, along with links to many of the things we talk about in this episode. I think you will learn a lot, and especially, like I said, some very important points that are often presented incorrectly, but even by other thyroid experts. So I, I know that you'll learn a lot, and without further ado, let's jump in. Dr. Christensen, welcome back.
0: Hey, Katie. Happy to be with you
1: here. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you. I have so much personal gratitude for you. You helped me in my own journey with overcoming thyroid disease. Um, You were the first one who really, first of all, recognized it, helped me get a diagnosis and then start on recovery. So I will be forever, forever grateful to you for that. And I know that you've helped many thousands of people do the same thing. And I'd love to have you back on a substantial amount of listeners have some form of thyroid disease, uh, Hashimoto's being a very common one. And I know that you are one of the foremost experts in the world on this. And so it's always such a joy to get to share you on this podcast. I know that you have been working on a really comprehensive new book that I think is really, really important for anybody with any kind of thyroid struggles, but especially Hashimoto's. And I want to go deep on some of the things you talk about today. Um, But to start broad, I think It's also important to make sure we have kind of a definition of terms and also an understanding of where we're going when we have conversations like this. Because thankfully, I didn't have this experience because I worked with you, but I've heard From many listeners who are, when they're diagnosed, told that their condition will not improve, it will likely get worse, and that it's lifelong. Um, So I'd love to kind of start there and talk about thyroid disease from the perspective of what is going on in the body, and can we support the body in undoing that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, and uh, great, great points to frame this. Generally, there's two big things. There's the thyroid glands' inability to make enough hormone, and the body not properly responding to that hormone. So those things go together. And up until the recent past, medicine did think that this was progressive, this was persistent, and this was just not reversible. But the new evidence that I'm sharing is that this can get better. Uh, For many people, that means that they will respond differently to thyroid hormones. They can have their symptoms clear up in ways that they had not before. And for some, it will mean that they will no longer need ongoing thyroid treatment. You know, their gland can literally grow back new cells and start to produce hormone more effectively again. So that, that's the exciting part.
1: That is really encouraging, especially because, like I said, that's not necessarily presented as common information. Why do you think that isn't really known in the standard of care right now? Are there parts of the approach that we're missing or that just the conventional treatment would maybe miss that make that not possible?
0: Yeah, so the thing that has come out that's made that perspective apparent is, is new information. It's from the last last several years, and there's always just a big lag between data being made and then data being delivered, you know, being used and influencing practice. So this is just the time for that to start coming out, but these are new discoveries that weren't available to any doctors and even just several years ago.
1: Wow. Okay. So walk us through some of those because I know from working with you that things like thyroid hormone can be helpful and even necessary, especially in the early part of it. Um, But what does that kind of arc of recovery look like? And how would someone know, for instance, if if that was going to be possible for them?
0: That's a good question. And it's not always clear in terms of whether someone will grow back their own cells. But Anyone can predict that they can do better in terms of responding to the hormone. So arc of recovery being that people, people typically can have diagnosis at the early years, or some it can be delayed, some it can be a decade or more out, and some are not yet on their medication. And there's those that are that are still still suffering and still symptomatic. And so with this new approach, they can have their system take up the hormones better. When, you're, when you take a hormone, it still has to be metabolized and absorbed by the cells and responded to properly by the mitochondria. And those are all parts that can be weak links in the chain and reasons why those who are on treatment don't feel like they are. They're, they're still having the same symptoms they had going into it. But those, those things can change, and they can change in an order of between one, one to three months. For those who are diagnosed and have had the disease for four years or fewer – and they're not yet on treatment, they've got a pretty good chance of having their cells just be normal again, and take over their own function by themselves and not needing to go on treatment. And that change can take between about three to six months.
1: That's so fascinating. And so against what a lot of the recommendations are. Um, What's going on physiologically with that happening? Because certainly the advice I know that I got early on with a thyroid diagnosis was um, obviously not from you, but before that was that if you have low thyroid, you need to take more iodine.
0: Yeah. And that's something that's tricky. You know, at, at a really superficial level of understanding, it could seem logical. The thyroid needs iodine to work. So you could think, well, if it's not working, it must need more. And I've thought about the way that nutrients can work, like the way that keys could work to a car. You know, if, if you don't have your keys, the car won't budge. But there's countless problems with the car that won't be remedied by more keys. And you could even imagine that if you poured, you know, 20,000 keys inside of the uh, passenger compartment in the driver's seat, you couldn't even drive properly. So this is how it works. Iodine is something to where the thyroid needs the tiniest amounts and there's only small amounts normally in circulation. So what it does is that it pumps it and it concentrates it inside of itself. The thyroid pumps in iodine. Now, Because the amounts needed are so small, if you ever get too much, the thyroid shuts itself off. And it does that because thyroid hormones, they're dangerous when there's too much of them. They can can damage the heart. They can cause bone thinning. They can cause brain damage. And our bodies have a sense about this. So rather than make too much hormone, they simply shut off the thyroid. So too little iodine can be a problem, but then so can too much. And part of the big new insight is that the gap between too little and too much is much narrower than we thought before, especially for some people.
1: And so it sounds like there's a lot of variation in individuality when it comes to the amount maybe a person needs.
0: Well, to be really precise, there's not a lot of variation in terms of nutritional requirements for iodine. We've not found variations in which some people need much higher amounts than others for their thyroid function. What we do find is there's a lot of variance in toleration of iodine. So the World Health Organization has looked at thousands of situations in which areas have fortified water with iodine and then seen how that plays out on improving and worsening thyroid disease. And you can talk a lot about just population outcomes and population ranges, but what we found is that almost any individual can safely tolerate up to about 1,100 micrograms of iodine for short-term purposes. But those who are prone to thyroid disease and vulnerable to it, that upper limit is probably more like 200 micrograms. So the lower limit for most anyone is somewhere around 50 micrograms. If anyone gets less than that long-term, they can get complications. It's a little different per age groups. That's really for adults and for non-pregnant women. But yeah, adults pretty consistently are about 50 micrograms for their low end. But those vulnerable to thyroid disease, the further they get above 200 micrograms, even for short periods of time, the more it can cause harm to them.
1: And this would include food sources of iodine as well, obviously, not just supplements, right?
0: Yeah, and that brings up a great point. So we get it from supplements, we get it from food, we can absorb some from, from cosmetics. And it's the sum total of all those sources that's, that we have to be bearing in mind.
1: How can we gauge how much we're getting from food, or what are some foods that we'd want to be cautious about if we're worried about consuming too much iodine?
0: Yeah, so two good questions. How can we gauge how much we're getting? And the best thing is to think about having a sense of avoiding the biggest outliers. There's no perfect tools for measuring iodine. We can talk more about that. In the U.S. population, they're not as common foods: Uh, kelp, nori, wakame, dulse. Those who do eat them, they contribute a lot, but they're not as common in a population level like ours. Then we think about dairy foods and processed grains. So these turn out to be the biggest sources for most people, uh, most people on a typical American diet. They both have a lot of iodine more so as a contaminant than as a natural extension of the food itself. And then third up after those two would be salt. Many types of salt have iodine added. Many other types it's not added, but naturally occurring. It can still have quite a bit.
1: That's interesting. So I think that might be new information for a lot of people is that processed dairy and grains can be a relatively substantial source of iodine. Is it added or is it in like an iodized salt that's added to processed grains or where is that coming from?
0: Well, so the grain specifically, there's something along the way of processing and manufacturing that's not totally clear and it's changed and it's fluctuated. So there have been a lot of market basket analysis studies done. The, the USDA goes into four regions of the country and they buy things from supermarkets and they analyze hundreds of different foods for their nutrient content. And this is done annually. And what they found is that when they're comparing the findings from the early 90s to the, the 2010s, that iodine content has gone has gone up two or three fold for a lot, of, a lot of popular grain-based foods. And there's some things you can buy in the shelf that'll say, you know, bread that has iodized dough conditioner. And it would seem logical to think that the ones that didn't say that would be okay. But that's not, that's not really borne out. So anything that has iodized based dough conditioners typically has a fair amount of iodine. But some things that don't label that still have higher quantities. So somewhere along the way in the production of commercial products, uh, bread, bagels, uh, biscuits, muffins, there are various iodine compounds that are used. And something, you know, I love how much emphasis you've trained people about the importance of unprocessed foods. You know, processed foods don't have to label everything that goes in the package. There are many things that are used along the way that are not considered formula recipe ingredients that are still present. And this is one one clear example of that.
1: That's so interesting. And it makes sense that obviously iodized salt contains iodine, but other forms of salt could as well, just because of The mineral content that they would naturally have. Um, How can we know? Are like, are there safer forms of salt to that are better to choose?
0: There are, and thankfully, this is an example of a really easy parallel substitution. So it's you know, one can one can still be deliberate about their salt intake for various reasons, but it doesn't have to be avoided across the board because of iodine. You know, simple rule: kosher salts are generally iodine free. the The most two common brands you'll see in stores are Morton's and Diamond brand kosher salt. And th- those are both free of iodine. And there's a, there's a couple types of sea salt too that I've spotted that are also relatively devoid of iodine. You know, one is Malden's brand sea salt. And then Celtic brand has a subtype called their light gray salt, which is both fine and coarse ground. And that's also relatively low in iodine. Pink Himalayan salt can be higher in it and sea salts, besides those two, they can vary just tremendously in their iodine content.
1: Got it. I'm a huge fan of the Malden sea salt, so I'll put a link to that one as well. Um, another thing when it comes to iodine, and I think there's some misinformation here I want to make sure we tackle. A lot of sources recommend doing an iodine patch test on your skin as a, a way to figure out how much iodine you need, and if the patch test tells you you need more iodine, you should take more. Can you explain a kind of what a patch test? is and b if that's accurate in knowing how much iodine we need
0: yeah so so many things with iodine come down to its volatile nature as a chemical and it's it's highly reactive it oxidizes quickly you know you can think of it kind of like bleach and it's it's similar in a lot of ways chemically it's the same place as chlorine on the periodic table the same row and so because of that it's it's random, and it's hard to to pin it down, so to speak. So the logic behind the patch test, the logic makes sense. The logic is that, you know, your body can absorb some things preferentially based upon your requirements. And that's totally true for like iron. We've got a big range in how active our iron binding proteins are in our intestinal tract, and they fluctuate reflective of our iron need. If we're low, we absorb more. If we have plenty, we'll absorb less. Now, that idea is then assumed to hold true for how iodine works on the skin. We do know that iodine does absorb across the skin. The numbers vary, but somewhere around four and a half percent of iodine will go across your skin and end up into your bloodstream. So the patch test assumes that how, how quickly you absorb it is a function of what your need is. And it also assumes that the color change, so iodine compounds like betadine, they're a dark, dark amber, like a dark brownish color and you paint them on your skin, they're quite visible, and over time, that fades. And so the assumption is twofold. The assumption is that the fading uh, the color is proportionate to the absorption of iodine, and the second assumption is that if you are absorbing it, you're going to absorb it based upon what your requirements are. So you put that together, and they basically assume that if you paint iodine on your skin and it goes away rapidly, you must have needed a bunch. And if it doesn't, you didn't need it. So to break down those two assumptions, the first one is just that there are many examples to where we do absorb active things across the skin, um, hormones, medications, some nutrients, for sure. But there are no known examples of that being regulated to where the body can choose how much absorbs across the skin. You know, we expect to take in nutrients from our gut so we can adjust some things there, but our body's not really geared up to, to intentionally take things across the skin. I mean, we can, but it's not so much part of our design or our adaptation. So we have no means of adjusting our absorption. Now, the other problem with the idea is that the color change. So the color change doesn't mean that it's gone. The color change is just the oxidization of iodine to iodide. So the colored iodine compounds like, like betadine, they have a mixture of iodide and iodine, and the color is solely from the iodine. Iodide is colorless. So When it's exposed to air, it converts from iodine to iodide and it becomes transparent. So you could have a massive amount of iodine on your skin, and the color change is just iodine itself chemically changing. It's not so much absorbing. And then if and if that's not enough, there there were some big studies done on this test. uh, And they were done in the early 30s. And they took people that had normal iodine status, they took those that were iodine deficient, and they also took skin from dead people. They took cadaver skin. And they painted on iodine and watched absorption time frames. And, and they saw that yes, most iodine does just oxidize and absorb into the air. Some would cross the skin barriers, but there was no consistent difference whether someone had enough iodine, too little, or whether even if they were living or dead. So yeah, just not not an accurate tool, unfortunately.
1: That's really, really good to know because that I feel like that information is so commonly. I've come across that in a lot of thyroid forums and just thyroid advice online, and it makes sense that there's so much variation between individuals and that skin would respond differently than something taken internally, but especially with the information you present in this book about how careful we need to be with that iodine level, it seems like it certainly wouldn't be an accurate enough measure to, to be able to use that as a gauge. I'd also love to go deeper on some of this, the other tenants you go into in the book about, um, obviously iodine is a huge key here, but there's a lot of other factors that go into recovery from thyroid disease as well. And I know for me, it required a lot, a long time of personal experimentation and trying things and getting a whole lot of stuff dialed in from gut health to diet to light and a, and a bunch of other factors in between. So walk us through some of those pillars of where someone would need to start obviously iodine being a big key, but other places we need to look if someone has thyroid disease, especially Hashimoto's, and wants to start moving toward recovery.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple couple of phases of this, and I think about some three main three main steps. You know, the first one is what are the things you can do to help your thyroid heal and repair, and and of those, iodine is non nonpareil. It's really just like in a in a category by itself. So regulating it is central, and that comes down to the diet and the other sources. Then the other things are along the way, which thyroid levels are most likely to benefit your symptoms, you know, give you better health long term, and then also add to the chance of the thyroid recovering. And this is especially relevant for those who are already on thyroid medication. Even if they weren't, you know, they were even if the high goal of theirs was to not take the medication long term, there's still a thought about which levels are most likely to make that happen. So that's part of it. And Referencing labs give a normal range, which is a good orienting starting place, but there's a lot of ways that can be individualized and a lot of ways that can better reflect optimal function. So, yeah, the first step being getting iodine regulated. The second step is those who are on treatment, how can they know when their treatment is doing its very best? And thankfully, those goals of having people feel better, you know, reducing their symptoms, the goal of helping the thyroid regrow, and the goal of being healthy in the long term they all sync up and they they all align. As a generalization, the TSH level, you know, thyroid stimulating hormone, it's the brain telling the thyroid to work and it's a backward number. It's the one that has the most variation between normal ranges and what optimal levels are. So the closer that can be between somewhere around half and two, especially close to one, that's more likely to resolve symptoms, give the thyroid a chance to heal, and also really set someone up for good long-term health. So yes, the second of those three steps would be getting the best thyroid levels. And then the third part are the the other conditions. So this is a big thing that I'm excited to talk more about too. People with thyroid disease, they often have something else going on as well. And I've seen so many examples to where they've tried really hard and done all the right things to help their thyroid work better, to get their levels right, you know, they done different medications, they've changed their diets, but they're just completely struggling because, say, they're anemic, or because they have hyperparathyroid disease, or they've got apnea. So I've identified 15 conditions, each one of which affects 5% or more of people with thyroid disease. And any given person with thyroid disease, there's about an 84% chance that they have one or more of these conditions that's affecting them. And they're often just not identified and taken care of.
1: Wow. Okay. So how can someone go about, I think that's a really important point that there's something else going on usually. How can someone go about trying to pinpoint that? Because I feel like this was a thing that um, it was so helpful to have you guide me in this journey myself, but it just seems like there's so many potential root causes and options and things that can be happening. How can someone start trying to figure that out themselves when it seems kind of overwhelming at the beginning?
0: Yeah. And, and that does take a good relationship with a trusted healthcare provider, you know, ideally someone that gets this concept in the thyroid world. You know, one classic problem that can come up a lot is digestive symptoms. You know, those with thyroid disease, they are, they've got irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms. They know they malabsorb nutrients or protein, and they struggle with that. Well, there's a thing called atrophic autoimmune gastritis, which has also been called thyrogastric syndrome. And that affects 30 to 40% of people with autoimmune thyroid disease. And it's most commonly diagnosed after it's been present for 20 to 30 years. So it's, it's a huge, huge problem. It's not at all esoteric and it causes significant symptoms for people. So things like this, just keeping those in mind. And I guess just having a mindset too of knowing that the, the pitfall can be that people, and also the practitioner can often get focused on just the thyroid and it's important it's got to be taken care of it's got to be dialed in but there can come a point in the journey to where it really has been but someone can still be not feeling well and all too often people think well maybe i even though the levels are okay maybe i need to take more thyroid or maybe i've got to change a medication maybe i've got to cut out more foods become more restrictive and you know sometimes those things may seem to be helpful at first or maybe they're not at all but it's it can be dangerous and then just losing away from the capacity to heal to spend too much time in the wrong directions. So yeah, it's understanding when that part is done, what it can do, and what could be the other real causes behind the symptoms.
1: That makes sense. And with that very specific gut condition, I know in general, it seems like there's a very high incidence of something going on in the gut that's not helpful when someone has thyroid condition. Um, I know that was the case for me, and I had to do a lot to address gut health. Is that a pretty much like universal good thing to start with too, if people have thyroid disease, is to look at the gut and um, make changes that are, are supportive of the gut. And if so, what would some of those changes be that would be beneficial to the gut?
0: Yeah, for sure, it can be very important for some people, and it's especially relevant for those that know they have gastrointestinal symptoms, the the gas, the bloating, the irregularity, uh, and then also quite relevant for those that have recurrent malabsorption of nutrients. They they keep turning up anemic. They have a hard time processing certain foods. They get a very, narrow range of foods they can do without getting symptoms. Those are all big signs that something is off there. And things to do about that, in terms of just general self-care, a simple step that's hugely powerful is meal timing. So being rather consistent and regular about meal times. There's this real complex interaction between the nervous system of the brain and that of the gut. And we call this the enteric nervous system in the intestinal tract. And if we look way back on human development over the arc of history, the organisms that preceded us were basically just a gut, like the earliest versions of complex life past individual cells. The first structural form was basically a tube. And if we move forward throughout adaptations and changes, everything was just stacked around or on top of the tube to help it move around and find food and get food and, you know, not become food. So that's our real core part of our identity. And we think so much about the ways that it affects symptoms. And also we talk about our emotions, about the things we feel in our guts. So generalized action steps, as much food variety as possible is is useful and variety within categories, like many types of vegetables, but also variety of categories. The pitfall is that if the diets get too restrictive, we lose on types of fibers. And what we're seeing as a general trend is that, of course, the flora is important, but the answer to a good flora is not just higher numbers of organisms in a probiotic supplement, but really more diversity and a healthy strain of many kinds of flora that are well adapted and well in balance. And to do that, we've identified 16 different categories of fibers in the diet. And the more categories of food someone cuts out, the more difficulties they have covering the bases on those categories of fibers. So yeah, as much as one can eat broadly more food categories, the better their flora will be. But if they are having symptoms of poor digestion, if they do malabsorb nutrients, then it does take really troubleshooting to see if someone has atrophic gastritis, if they have some neurologic peristaltic abnormalities, they're carrying chronic infections, but yeah, really troubleshooting the intestinal tract.
1: And if the fiber variety is important with this, I would guess, at least extrapolate that, a really, really hardcore keto diet that doesn't have a lot of fiber or like carnivore probably would not be a good option for thyroid patients. Is that a good assumption or, or is there more to it than that? Well, so whenever
0: we try to answer questions, we think about first and foremost, what do we know from human studies? Like, have there actually been interventional studies done? And then if we if we don't have that data, and then we think about, well, what's most likely given our models of understanding that we do have? And so the the keto diets, they have been studied uh, most extensively in pediatric populations. Kids, Kids are given ketogenic diets for purposes of epilepsy that's resistant to medications. And to date, they have found that ketogenic diets can be better than seizures for kids that don't tolerate medications. Generally, when medications are effective, they are lower in side effects for children than the diet can be but some kids are not responsive kids don't get a lot of thyroid disease it can be a case per 1000 a case per 1200 it's quite rare that children get autoimmune spontaneous thyroid disease but in the trials on ketogenic diets about 20% of children do develop thyroid disease and for some that can be lasting so we we do know that that in that context can be counterproductive in terms of the carnivore diet yeah, it's a diet that we have just no, no data on and no real tracking on. But we do know that diets that yield the best health outcomes long-term are diets that are rich in a variety of healthy plant foods. They're generally not, they're not diets that are devoid of animal foods per se, but they certainly show an, an abundance of food categories. So yes, given what we you know about the importance of the bowel flora, and given that we know that the flora is only fed on residues we find from plant foods, There's every reason to think that that would be counterproductive.
1: Got it. Okay. So then, on the flip side of that, are there foods that, in general, I know there's always an individuality aspect of this, but in general, that seem supportive of both gut health and thyroid health, that are good to focus on trying to include?
0: Well, there's been a there's there's actually one study on food categories and thyroid health. There's there's so there's been very little data on this. A funny thing, uh, Katie, but if we look at studies on food and thyroid function, and we leave, out, uh, we leave out iodine, and we leave out celiac disease, we've got about six studies. <laughs> if we pull in celiac disease, we've got about 30 studies showing that people with celiac disease get more thyroid disease. And if we pull in iodine, we've got about 40,000 studies. So that's kind of like the magnitude of our data. But leaving, leaving it aside, there was a fascinating study done called the 1001 Dalmatian study. I don't think I told you about this one before. Maybe I did, but So Dalmatians are also humans. There's there's an ethnic group of Croatians that where the name came from, apparently. And the study looked at a group of them. Uh, They are somewhat prone to thyroid disease. And it contrasted their rate of developing thyroid disease. And it compared that against their intake of different food by category. And what they saw is that the food categories most preventative for thyroid disease were uh, omega-3 rich foods, you know, some, some types of, of seafood, especially lower iodine seafood, and then also uh, vegetables in general, fruits in general, and legumes came up as well. So those are the biggest categories that had a negative correlation with thyroid disease. The more they included those foods, the less they developed thyroid disease. And the food categories that were most related to thyroid disease, the singular one was foods that were dense sources of saturated fat, so, so butter did come up in that category, as did animal fats in general. Those are the, that was the main thing that was known to elevate it. But the risk was most decreased by really just plant foods and then omega-3 fat foods.
1: Any tips on sourcing omega-3s? Because I know this has been an area of somewhat controversy in the health world the last few years and about the, the potential of those uh, fats going rancid very easily. Do you, like, what do you personally do on this and any tips for sourcing either from food or from supplements?
0: Yeah, great question. Supplements, I do also think about iodine content. Um, we we assay our stuff that way, and and that that's the pitfall about animal omega threes is that many of them are dense in iodine. So then we think also about plant omega threes, and I put a lot of thought into this. So there's 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 only two essential fatty acids. Those are fats that we cannot manufacture internally, and that's alpha linoleic acid and linolenic acid. So these are two that we depend upon, and we make alpha-linolenic acid into EPA and DHA. Those are then secondary metabolized fats. So we can make those given the right circumstances. And what are those right circumstances? Well, there's an enzyme called delta-5 desaturase that's involved in making this this vegetable omega fat into the active EPA and DHA. Kind of a funny paradox is that the, the on on very high fat diets like ketogenic diets. That delta five desaturase is overloaded because it's got to desaturate every single fat that's consumed. So on the extremes of high fat diets, paradoxically, there's the greatest risk of being low in those essential fats or those essential fat metabolites, EPA and DHA. But when total fat intake is more reasonable, people can consume vegetable omega three fats and be more likely to get what they need from those. So we see those from things like flax most abundantly, uh, walnut, uh, hemp seeds, chia seeds. And, and yeah, without there being super high amounts of dietary fat, people can readily convert those into EPA and DHA. And there are, there are pathways that do that. They are, they are not perfect. They, are, they don't convert all of it. But when you run the numbers, it's actually not too tough to get enough to get through and, and make good
1: quantities. That's fascinating and good to know. Yeah, I feel like this is an area that's been argued about quite a bit recently and especially with the idea of um, like fermented fish oils and if those are beneficial or not. So much to consider on that. This podcast is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, my go-to source for functional mushrooms like lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and more recently I've really been enjoying their protein powder. It's new and it's delicious. It contains 18 grams of pure plant proteins, seven functional mushrooms and adaptogens, and the realest organic vanilla out there. Plus not a single grain gum or gram of stevia. I love adding their vanilla flavor to a smoothie with some berries for an easy meal. My kids love it too. And their peanut butter flavor blended with some cacao and macadamia milk makes a great protein packed afternoon pick me up. If you haven't tried Four Sigmatic, I'm also a huge fan of their Lion's Mane Coffee in the Morning for non-jittery clean energy and their Reishi Elixir Packets at night for restorative sleep. But I'm yet to try any of their products that I don't love. So check all of them out at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama saves you 10% on everything. So again, that's F-O-U-R s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama, all one word, all lowercase, to save 10%. This podcast is sponsored by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's the personal care company that I founded to take on some of the worst offenders in the personal care world. Did you know, for instance, that many hair care products contain harsh detergents? but your hair isn't dirty laundry and it doesn't need to be treated like it is. Instead, we created a nourishing and natural hair food product that supports hair's natural balance and strength over time to leave it stronger and healthier and still just as shiny and clean as any other shampoo. To help you see and feel the difference, we're hosting a hair detox challenge. Try it for 30 days and show us the difference in your hair. Just snap a before and after picture and tag us on any social media. And to make it easier for you to jump in, you can save 15% on all of our hair care products this month with the code HAIRDETOX15 at wellness.com. Again, that's wellness, dot ecom and save 15% on all hair care products right now with the code HAIRDETOX15. What about are there other foods that are kind of almost universally good to avoid? You, you touched on a few and also like processed dairy and processed grains. Are there any others that would be problematic just from a thyroid-specific perspective?
0: Well, one thing that's been talked about quite a bit is gluten. And in almost all cases, when someone avoids gluten, they're avoiding a whole pile of processed foods. And that's probably useful. We do know that uh, many people have celiac disease. We know that there's overlap between thyroid disease and celiac. In the general population, about 1% of people have an autoimmune reaction against a protein that's found in wheat. And the funny thing is, if you think this through, why would we call that autoimmune if it's something that's only from the diet? You know, we don't call peanut allergies autoimmune allergies, but celiac is. And that's because we're, we're really attacking an enzyme, and that's anti-glutaminase. And that enzyme itself is a normal part of our bodies. And it's what we use to form a lot of connective tissues. So celiac disease, it's categorized as autoimmune because we're attacking a normal part of humans. It happens by just overlap of biochemistry that gluten itself is related to anti-glutaminase. So whether we consume gluten or not, we still have anti-glutaminase. And those with celiac who are gluten-free have, are much better off and they need to do that. But there are still are health challenges because glutaminase is part of the humans. So we see that general populations have this at about 1%. And those with thyroid disease have this at about 2.8%. So for many, that can be more common. And then we have those with wheat allergy. There's been a question about whether those that don't have celiac disease, whether it's important for them, but have thyroid disease, whether it's important for them to avoid gluten. And if someone by avoiding gluten is just cutting out processed foods, they're probably healthier for that. But there was one big study done in which they took people with celiac disease and first what they did, they were newly diagnosed, and first they identified those that were known to have thyroid disease, and they pulled them aside, and of the remaining group, they watched to see over the course of the coming year who developed thyroid disease, and they could also watch to see who was compliant with their new recommendations to go gluten-free and who was not. There's actually blood markers that can show that, and so the expectation was that if gluten were causative for those with celiac disease if it caused thyroid disease that those who avoided gluten fewer of them should develop thyroid disease than those who did not it was actually the opposite <laughs> not by a big degree but there was actually a few more people that got thyroid disease that went gluten free than those that did not which was surprising for many so yeah there's there's certainly no harm in cutting out a lot of processed foods but it doesn't seem that gluten causes thyroid disease for those with or without celiac disease. It turns out that there's some propensity towards autoimmunity that if you get one, you're more apt to get the other, but one doesn't so much cause the other.
1: Okay, that's a really important distinction, I feel like. Another thing I want to touch on, I feel like is very related to thyroid disease and another area that you know a lot about, um, although it's a little bit less of a direct connection, but is the idea of the factors like light and sleep and stress and how those relate to recovery from, I think, really anything, but especially from a, a thyroid perspective. And I know you've written about how we can use light to our advantage For a lot of these health problems. And even we've talked about that before on this podcast. Um, I don't have time to go all the way into that today, but can you give us a high level from a thyroid perspective of how we can use those factors to our advantage?
0: You know, kind of like I was saying about food, being regular in our rhythms is important. You know this as well as anyone that how critical it is to have like the right schedule for babies to, to behave and, you know, and, and, to, and to function well and to feel good. And we don't lose that need as adults. We still have a need to be on regular rhythms. And yeah, light exposure sets those rhythms in big ways. Since we would have spoken in the past about that, Katie, there have been a few updates. So nothing has really changed with the importance about bright light in the morning. You know, one of the biggest things you can do is when you wake up in your first hour of being awake, spend some time outside. the the light intensity and the light properties outdoors, even on the cloudiest days, are completely different than, the, than anything found indoors, even in like really brightly lit rooms. So yeah, get outside in the morning. It can be that simple. But yeah, your first hour of being awake, about a half an hour of daylight type light is magical. The one update is that we've we wondered if blue light was harmful at night because it's blue light, or was it the context of blue light, meaning that your brain was stimulated by looking at a computer or looking at a television. Was it the stimulation or was it the blue light part? And the emerging data is that if you, could, if you could be reading a book with some blue light or looking at a computer without the blue light, you're probably better off reading the book with blue light. So that we, we think now it's more about just the mental stimulation than just about the nature of light by itself. So yeah, end of the day, the total quantity of light matters, you know, just more dim environments. But also avoiding things that are highly mentally stimulating.
1: That's fascinating. And I did not know about that. That's new information on the blue light and a good reason to, I guess, reevaluate because I think a lot of people are using things like flux or using apps on their phone or blue bloggers, but still watching like adventure movies at night.
0: Right. And it, it may not be as helpful. You're probably better off, you know, dimming the lights. The glasses are certainly harmless and they may be of some benefit, but probably the big thing is just not doing things that are revving up your brain right before you go to bed.
1: Yeah. And right. as from a parent's perspective, probably also really good advice with kids is to keep them away from stimulating uh, inputs at, at night as well. Another thing I think about pretty often since having been through Hashimoto's myself and now being in remission is how can I hopefully keep my kids from ever having to go through this? And I think any parent who's been through a health problem thinks about that from the perspective of how can I help my kids not have to go through the same thing that I did. And certainly I think we can pull a lot from the things we've already talked about of things to avoid that can help really improve their chances by improving their gut health, um, making sure that they are getting nutrient-dense foods, and some of those things specifically we talked about making sure we're not giving them too much iodine. But are there any other things we can do um, from our parent perspective when we're talking about our children or spouses maybe who don't have thyroid problems to help hopefully reduce their chances of ever encountering that?
0: For sure. The the simplest thing you can do is maintain good selenium status. And the exciting thing is that I was, I was wary about talking too much about Brazil nuts as a food source for kids. They've got a lot of selenium, and we've known that the amounts they contain are – generally safe for adults, but it is possible for, for some forms of selenium to become toxic. So I was wary about encouraging that for kids, but a study was done not too long ago in South America. And you know if they would have asked me about this study, I would have told them that probably not a good idea because it was pretty extreme. They had malnourished children that were toddlers and they gave them pretty massive amounts of Brazil nuts. It was like a quarter of their total food intake. And they measured selenium in a lot of different ways. And what it came down to is that we now know the chemical forms of selenium in Brazil nuts are ones that kids can make good use of and they can very safely eliminate if there is any excess. So it really doesn't bioaccumulate. And that's not true for all versions of selenium. So, so yeah, I, Brazil nuts for good snacks for family purposes. All the bad things I was saying about iodine, are amplified when someone is below their targets for selenium. And that's not hard to do. It's rather easy to fall behind in selenium. But for kids to add in even half a Brazil nut to a Brazil nut a day, for adults two to four per day, it's such an easy thing. And your odds of being selenium deficient when you're doing that are just about nil.
1: Yeah, I had that tip from you and I've done that since you mentioned it to me. Years and years ago, along with um, broccoli sprouts being a big part of my life, um, ever since that first conversation. For anybody who didn't hear that first um, episode, can you also just talk briefly about broccoli sprouts and how they can be beneficial?
0: Yeah, they're a great thing. So they they are dense sources of sulforaphane and thyroid hormones. There's what we have that comes into our body from making it or from taking it in pills, and then there's just tons of ways throughout our bodies that we fine tune, regulate, convert eliminate. And sulforaphane does a good job helping all those peripheral mechanisms work better. So all the ways your body would want to fine tune thyroid levels can work much better if sulforaphane is helping your liver. And broccoli sprouts are one of the densest sources of that.
1: Awesome. I'll put the links. I know you have resources about that and I have a post about it as well. Um, I'll make sure those are linked in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm for all of you guys listening. Dr. Christensen, obviously I consider you my top resource on all things thyroid health and I think you are one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on this topic. For people who um, are working through this on their own and trying to, to figure out their own path to healing, how can they connect with you and keep learning from you and find more resources?
0: Yeah, my main hub of information is uh, drchristiansen.com, drchristiansen.com, and that's where we just keep all things coming out.
1: Perfect, and I know that there are some special links related to the book, which I highly recommend for any of you guys who are working through thyroid issues. Um, That link will be in the show notes as well um, at wellnessmama.fm, and I believe there are some special things that go along with this around now for launch time. Is that right?
0: Yes, there's a docu-series called Invisible Iodine, and this just kind of portrays the story of this change that's occurred, because thyroid disease has gone on forever. But the last couple decades, specifically 90s through the 2010s, its rates have doubled and tripled. So it's really on the rise. It's not a coincidence we're seeing more about it and talking more about it. And this docuseries explains that rise, you know, what are the big reasons behind that? And what are some easy things you can do to help prevent prevent it?
1: Awesome. I'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes so people can find them and keep learning as well as, of course, the link to your book. And Dr. Christians, I know how busy you are and how many people you help on a daily and weekly basis. Very grateful for your time and for sharing today.
0: I always happy to be with you, Katie. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And thanks to you guys, as always, for listening, for sharing your most valuable resource, your time with both of us today. We don't take that lightly and we're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast.